Hey everyone, it's Cam Hurt, host of the Best Show Ever podcast, and we have got a second season coming out very soon that I am very excited about. We've got some very cool special guests, including musical acts that we all love, like Karina Reichman, Daniel Donato, Jake Brownstein from Eggy, Rick and Peter from Goose, and many more. Tune in for new episodes dropping on Osiris Media March 5th on the Best Show Ever podcast. Welcome to Wheels Off, a show about the messy reality of the creative life. I'm Rhett Miller. That's when it got wheels off. We started up and we ain't gonna stop. Oh, sound like you like it or not. That's when it got wheels off. Dan Wilson is a songwriter's songwriter. He has devoted his life to the craft an art, and magic of writing songs. He came up with his band, um, well, he came into prominence with his band, Semisonic, and their hit Closing Time, which everyone knows, in the 90s. He then has gone on to have an incredible career as co-writer to the greats, and he's written, I'm not even going to try and list off the number of hit songs that he has co-written, he's really devoted his life to a thing that I love. So it means a lot to me that I get to add him to the Wheels Off roster. Dan Wilson joins me from his home in California, where he has uh, moved his standing plywood desk into a sunny spot to speak with me. One thing that he is excited about right now, and we talk about it some in the interview, is the words and music in six seconds deck that he is just releasing. It's um, based on an online series of advice that he gives about songwriting. And this deck is a deck of 74 cards, uh, each of them with a simple, thought-provoking idea or bit of advice about songwriting. I cannot wait to get my hands on a copy of the deck if you are on Dan's management or publicity team hook me up <laughs> please I should just buy one let's all just face that fact right there anyway I'm tickled as you can probably tell to welcome to Wheels Off Dan Wilson Welcome to Wheels Off, Dan Wilson. Thank you, Rhett. That's so great. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm so excited to have you on. Um, I started to ask you before we officially started, and and I want to ask you for the edification of our listeners. Are you okay. standing up right now? Yeah, I'm standing up. Yeah. I mean, I can sit. I'm here. I'm sitting this. <laughs> anyway, I have a lot of things to tell you about. That's not cool. Yeah, I've, I've been... Um, I got a I got a plywood standing desk a year ago, or maybe yeah, around a year ago, and um, I've been just bringing it to various various uh, spaces to see which ones are are benefit from standing in. And um, the, I have a, a like when I work on my laptop on Ableton. It's actually great to just like do everything on a standing desk. I, I could probably do it everywhere. I like it. I, I got the idea from um, Jake Sinclair. 
with fans at all times because he has a lot of he, he i think he does it because he has a lot of energy i could see that You know what, judging from just the the description of the way you're moving your desk around and from what I know about you via social media and the incredible looking new words and music in six seconds deck of cards that you've released, which seems so cool to me. um, It seems to me that you are always searching, like you're constantly trying to better yourself as an artist and as as a craftsman, like you're thinking about it. You're living an examined life. If you will, well, right? That's, that's really interesting. I, I, I think it's probably true. Um, I, I went to, um, I studied art at Harvard. I was in the art department, which was, which was kind of a, a under, underloved division of the university. But um, <laughs> I studied under some really, really smart artists, and they were super into um, process. They were into... You know, these these are people who had been doing art for a long time and ha- and had spent a lot of their energy in life trying to figure out how to be how to have a an artistic life be uh, sustainable and uh, literally things to do with like physical comfort, keeping yourself um, just you know together um, uh, physically was even among the things that they they thought about and tried to advise me on. And I'm I'm you know. Uh, yeah, but they, but they, they kept me in that mode of like tweaking the system and I totally, I totally buy it. I totally think it's, uh, it's a meta practice. That's really great for an artist to just know, even to learn what makes me feel more creative, what makes me feel more inspired, what, what allows me to feel more inspired, you know? It's funny too because in a way it's um it's like this full circle thing where when when I was first learning about artists and art um my question was always do you write you know longhand do you use a typewriter like the those kind of questions about really yeah. specific stuff and I feel yeah. like w- when I encounter young artists now their questions are that kind of thing as if the answer to all of it is whether or not you write longhand or on a computer or a typewriter and then you go through a life of making art and then once you're like really good at what you do you kind of come back around to going hmm should i write long <laughs> longhand or on a typewriter amazing i totally agree i had i had this um realization you know, the, the, the words and music cards, I'm so happy about them and I'm so happy that they're out and I'm glad that people are going to have them in their, in their studios and their homes and stuff. But I keep writing new ones. I'm just, I'm, I'm just sort of, that's one of the things I do. Like I, I chose from like, I don't know, 350 little potential cards to get it down to 75. <clears throat> but I keep writing new ones. And, and I wrote a new one recently that was... Um, Let's see. Um, something like this. Your creative life is an accumulation of many, many moments and decisions. Too many of them to control. And then basically, I can't remember the next exact wording of the next sentence, but it was something like, um, you know, many, many musical moments and decisions. Too many of them to control. Just concentrate on having good work habits and enjoying your life. And a lot of the other stuff will take care of itself. And I, I really do believe that. I really believe that. 
You know, it, it reminds me of, of um, when they try to interview uh, sports figures after a big victory or some magical play. You know, somebody does something insanely great. And they say, how, do you, how did you do that? And the, the sports figure is always saying something akin to, um, well, I just worked out and practiced every day for years until moments like that just happened. It, I, I, I wasn't thinking, oh, this is a make or break catch, you know. I just jumped up and caught the ball. And I really feel like that's what happens if you like if you if you're in that practice and you're in that flow and some make or break moment comes, you're not even gonna know it was a make or break moment. You just kind of you just catch the ball. It's not it's not different than the moment before and the moment after. I guess I have to believe that, but I I, I having had big moments, that's kind of what they're like. Um so the the cards are incredible. The new semi-sonic songs are really great. Um, and I have a feeling that there may be too much of an answer to this question. But uh, what... Crystal with me. <laughs> no, no, no. I just... Because you do a lot. So I'm wondering, what creative project are you working on right now? And uh, and how does it light you up? Um, yeah. I, you know, it's interesting. Um. Semisonic had like a real head of steam uh, a year and, and some ago, a year and a couple months ago. We had finished, we finally finished mixing the EP. I had a bunch of other, um, we, we had worked on a bunch of other songs. There's probably like five or six other songs and three of them are really, really good. So I was thinking about, um, you know, next steps with Semisonic. We decided to put out the, the EP, um, You're Not Alone, during pandemic, kind of knowing that we would, that our opportunity to um, tour, I was the most pessimistic of the group and I didn't even feel like I was being pessimistic. I was like, well, if we put it out in the summer, we're not really gonna be able to do shows for another year after that. And everyone was like, really? And I was like, pretty sure. But on the other hand, I, I want people to hear this music and I want to move forward with it, even in this weird, super limited way. So we made that kind of, you know, I don't know, bold or, or stubborn decision, put out the record. It, it did well at radio. I feel like our fans really dig it. I love it. And then weirdly, I had a I had a stall of of I don't know if it was my will or my focus, but I focused a lot on uh, writing songs with other people for them for the next six months. And did a lot of like live performances with the guys on on internet, you know. But I didn't, I didn't think about like, okay, if I want this to work the way I I want it to work, we kind of have to do the whole thing again in a year's time. Put out a new EP, then plan some shows, and call this a lost opportunity. I, 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 but I didn't do that. I just skipped the whole thing in my mind. So right now I'm staying up kind of late in the dark in my house and like writing riffs for new semi-sonic songs. I'm thinking about loud, loud guitar. <laughs> well, I love You're Not Alone. And I mean, obviously the, you know, the, the easy to make point about the song is the perfect timing of the sentiment. Yeah, yeah. Um, but boy, I've got to say just sonically, um, it really uh, compares so favorably to me to like it, to the Kinks, Ray Davies. Have you gotten that? I just think like something about your voice on that track specifically, maybe the 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 way that song is constructed, it felt like a, like a Lost Kinks song to me. I, that's amazing. I, I love those guys. I love the Kinks records. And I think, okay, if there was something I would want to have 
from those Kinks records, and I think it is in You're Not Alone, it's kind of a casualness about the performances. Like, I think Semisonic Records um, from the 90s, the best of them had that casualness, but my singing is pretty intentional at that time. You know, it was pretty... Um, I wouldn't say studied because I'd never been a great singer, but but I was really trying to achieve something with the way I was singing and how I was presenting and stuff like that. And and this time around, we uh, we were so um, I was so intent on capturing the sound of the band, just kind of casually rocking out in a room. So I sang a lot of those vocal tracks live, and we kept a lot of the the live vocal performances because they had this kind of unstudied casual vibe and that's what i love about the kinks it sounds like a dude's just talking to you i just love those records (laughs) god i wonder maybe this is a subsect of the youth is wasted on the young observation but we've been the old 97s have recently been remixing an album from the late 90s and i'm listening to my voice on there going oh my god i had not yet learned how to just sing like it was yeah. I could hear myself in my own head so I wonder if when we're starting out how, how how many hours how long is this is this a global phenomenon for people that make music that like eventually you get over the self-consciousness that makes you a self-conscious singer wow um we'll put it this way I sometimes listen to I I I I listen to music from like a lot of different eras, you know, and um, when I listen to early Dylan, which I do quite a bit, um, that dude is like so in tune. There's nothing wrong with his singing. It's, it's all right, you know, and a lot of the talk about him as a bad singer was a, was a, a rap that he intentionally brought upon himself to to distinguish himself from stuff that he thought was cheesy. I think he just sang like Bill Monroe and those kind of yodelers because he could. But if you listen to um, Basement Tapes, uh, not my song Basement Tapes, but the the record of his that I stole the title from, um, he's singing with like 10 different voices on all the different songs. He's like McCartney. He can be Orbison like crooning and he can be Bill Monroe kind of yodeling wild man and he can be you know almost like hank williams on some things and and on other things he sounds like sort of a precursor to 70s rock like he's inventing 70s rock voice and he's and he's killing the the pitch and they're doing it in a basement like there's no there's no auto tune for god's sake you know there's nothing there's not even punching in and and uh he's just nailing it so i personally i feel like it took me until i was 35 to sing in tune in the studio and not be sharp. And that's lucky. I'm I'm glad I didn't have any hits until then because I would be so pissed to listen to myself on the radio singing sharp, you know? I'm I'm so glad (laughs) when I hear my old records that I recorded after I was 35 and I finally figured it out. I love, well, I'm one of the reasons I was so excited, am so excited to talk to you is because I feel like you've gotten to live a lot of lives as a musician, songwriter, producer, like all the things you've done. Um, yeah. But I wonder, going back to the beginning of it, did do you remember 
early on, do you remember there being a moment when you knew like, oh, I'm going to be a songwriter. I'm going to be a musician. This is my life. And uh, was there an epiphany moment as a kid? Yeah. Well, I have some epiphanies in my mind that they're different. They have different shapes. But like, I was in second grade when I first heard She Loves You on the radio. And it was already a long gone, it wasn't a hit anymore. It was, but the, 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 um, the kind of news grown up station uh, that my dad listened to in the car played it just randomly. And I was literally in second grade, I was like, oh my God, what is, I want to do that. Like, I really felt like I wanted to do that. And I, you know, I just started piano lessons and I didn't really realize, you know, what a long and winding road that would be. But I, would, I, would, I really got that feeling like, who are these people, you know? And then by the time I was like in sixth grade, seventh grade, um, I was listening to Elton John records and thinking about what it would take to be Elton John. Literally, like what... What does he have? Like, what was he doing? Like, when I was uh, maybe 11, I listened to Elton John, and I thought he must be doing some kind of gimmicky thing with his voice to make him famous. So I literally had this theory that he's doing some sort of, like, which makes sense. Like, Elvis had that that hiccupy thing, you know, and a a lot of singers do. Uh, Sinatra goes, um, from... You know, there's, everybody has all these fucked up little quirks that they, you know, use. So I, when I was 11, I was listening to Elton John and trying to figure out what were the tricks he was using and could I use them? I, it's, obviously, that was not the strategy, but I really was like, okay, I was being like, I was scheming. That's so that you're reminding me. I've never met the guy, but I've read a lot about Rivers Cuomo keeping notebooks where he analyzes songs, song structure, production, yeah. what yeah. what equals a hit, like the the human computer program figuring out what is a hit song. Yeah, have you? He have showed, you, he he showed Rivers you. notebooks because I was I was writing songs with him one time, and I said, "Hey, I hear you have notebooks that have like all the principles of songwriting in them." And he's like, "Yeah, you want to see them?" And so. <laughs> We went out to this sort of shack or shed. It was at his old house. And we went out to this shack and he showed me this like, um, like a low bookshelf full of white three ring binders. And he's like, you know, there they are. And I'm like, what, what did you, what, what, what is inside these binders? And he said, well, it's like every song I analyzed every song that I love and I, you know, figured out some principles from it. And I said, um, if if the model is the same size as the thing you're modeling, it's not really a very convenient model. <laughs> and he cracked up. I said, "There's a joke." I said, "There's a joke by Wright. Uh, there's a comedian named Wright. Somebody Wright, very dry." Oh yeah, dry. yeah, Stephen Wright. Stephen Wright, and he said, um, I have a map of the world at one-to-one scale. Yeah. 
I can't find a place to unfold it. <laughs> and I, I said that to Rivers about his enormous, like, encyclopedic, like, I thought it was going to be five pages. I could borrow it, you know, and like, say, oh. <laughs> no. Did you ever I look? See I want to see what you've distilled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it's not really distilled. <laughs> Oh my God, I love that so much. Um, so That's probably why I made the words and music in six seconds cards. It's a tiny deck of cards with everything you need to know in it. <laughs> it's not one-to-one. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, you've, in this um, in this sort of last, I, I don't even know how many years, when you've been writing with other people like Rivers, like Goodell, like the, just like you've written so many songs with so many people, many of whom are as big as it gets in, in the world. I just wonder what what is it like to walk into a room maybe when, before you were really used to it? Um, is it tricky? Do you encounter, I guess my question is about internally generated obstacles. When you walk into a room with someone that is intimidating, you know, like uh, by definition, um, yep. do uh, what do you come up against within yourself and um, how do you deal with it? Well, uh, the first time I encountered that, aside from brief, like when I was a teenager, I went to a show of the band Squeeze, mm-hmm. and a friend of mine was doing lights for them. He had had some lucky break as an 18-year-old or something, and and he took me backstage to meet the band, and I briefly met all the members of the band. And that the last guy I met was um, Gilson, the drummer, whom I admired a lot. And he basically spent the next 15 minutes really aggressively trying to pick up my girlfriend, who I was right next to. Like it was literally, he was literally trying to steal my girlfriend in the dressing room. And I, I, I very, like, that was a breaking point for me because I was like, oh, these fuckers, <laughs> you know, they're just like everybody else. Like now they, now they're class president. They just get to be jerks, you know, but, I, but then I kind of, I backed away from that a little bit. And apparently this was during his like drinking phase, you know, and I, anyway, I, I, I'm not, I don't hold a grudge, but that definitely took the whole thing down a, a notch for me because it was so s- slimy, you know? So, um, but I still admire the guy a lot. And, you know, maybe it was a mistake in his part, or maybe he could tell that he was cooler than me and he needed to get rid of me to make this all look right, you know, but um, she stayed, she didn't go away with the drummer at that point. (laughs) Um, Anyway, later, the first time I had like a crazy intimidation moment was when I wrote a song early in my co-writing with, with Carol King. Wow. And the best um, among, I mean, it was the most amazing experience as far as just a day, a long day of work. And I had admired her since I was a kid and my mom was a big fan of her. So it was, it was like, you know, it was very intimidating. And halfway through the session, I kind of realized that Carol knew that I was intimidated she had encountered this over and over again and she knew what to do. And she calmed me down. She like 
made it funny to be writing with her. She never argued for an idea. If I said, I don't know, she'd go, okay, how about this instead? Instantly. And she would channel some other crazy great thing, you know. Or And, and she, for a little while, I kind of played a trick on both of us because I just kept naming old songs of hers that, like I said, I love... I wasn't born to follow. And she goes, no one ever mentions that song. And I'm like, are you crazy? That's a, that's an amazing song. And she goes, wait a minute, hold on. She sits down at the piano and she's like thinking, and, she, and then she sang it for me. She goes, I haven't sung this for years. Like she was so like delighted that, it, you know, younger songwriter was a fan of that particular song of hers that wasn't a hit. And, um, but then afterwards I like, I was like, God, she put me at ease. That was amazing. Like she knew that I was beside myself at the beginning. She had to know. And she, it also, I'm sure it was a very familiar experience for her because she's a God. So I, the next time I felt similarly excited, nervous, upset about about an upcoming session was when I was about to write with the Dixie Chicks who I admired a lot before I met them. And, um, but when we had, when we got together, I had already had that sort of masterclass with Carol several years before. And I had done a lot of sessions with other people who were nervous, not because I was me, but they were nervous because of sharing their process and feeling like they were about to look really stupid because their process is is dumb, which everyone thinks. So I had gone through like both sides of the, you know, looking glass, I guess, by the time I got to the session with the chicks. But I was so excited about writing with the chicks. I was super nervous. Like, and I realize now, like, you're just going to always be. I, I don't think I'm ever going to be such a Zen master that I won't be nervous to write a song with, with someone I admire. It's funny. So I think I meant to ask you about internally generated obstacles. And I wound up sort of, I think, putting myself in your shoes and imagining how I would be starstruck or kerfluffled by, you know, by the, the different people like whom you're naming. But I, but yeah. I do wonder, like, for you coming up, like, even before Semisonic had any hits or even before, like, was there stuff that you dealt with where you, you know, because I talk to people a lot about, imposter syndrome or even like Roseanne Castro was the first person to bring up the idea of uh, success guilt, like these things that come up within us that we probably don't deserve, certainly don't deserve, but they happen um, unbidden and we have to move past them. Like, I wonder, is that like, you don't seem like you're tormented, but I wonder if you, if there, if that happens to you. Well, my parents, when I was a teenager, I was depressed all the time, as many teenagers were. And I couldn't be cheered up. And I was, I was just a dark cloud for a couple of years of being a teenager, even though I was like a gregarious, I was like the most gregarious nerd in my high school. And I, I was given a pass because I could draw really mean um, portraits of the teachers. So the cool kids liked me because I was like, I had a provocateur side in my art, art, artiness, but um, I was, I had the blues all the time. And I, it was just before, I guess the era when you could get treatment or where it was considered so, something other, other than you're just a malcontent or you're um, 
melancholy person, which I think I've always been anyway. But at that time, my parents were just so confused about me. And years later, I was talking to my mom about my teenage years. And she said, oh, you were just so depressed so much of the time. And you were so like unhappy. And at one point, your dad said to me, I don't know what to do with that boy. Like they were so baffled by my sadness. And um, I, I really, uh, being a parent now, I, I, I really uh, empathize with that. And I, I think that, I think that side of me was probably part of, and, and also a, a kind of borderline obsessive compulsive, always have to finish everything. When I was, when I first got my first apartment and I was paying bills, I would go down to the, I would write out all the checks, seal them all up, go down to the mailbox on the corner, go back up to the apartment, open up all the checks, take out all, open up all the envelopes, take out all the checks, make sure that each check was in the envelope, uh, put the envelope back in the check, uh, put the check back in the envelope, glue the envelope together, take that one down to the mailbox, come back up, take the second envelope, put the check in, glue it with Elmer's glue, take it down to the mailbox. I had this kind of thoroughness that in some contexts is just a nightmare. And uh, it, it extended into all, you know, like huge parts of my life. It wasn't just about paying bills, you know, it's, it's like you can imagine, it's just everywhere. And so I don't know about that being internal, an internal obstacle, because weirdly, it made practicing the guitar and the piano super easy, you know, to do one thing for, you know, unreasonable amounts of time was very easy for me because it's just who I was as a guy, you know. And I think later in life is when it it hit me because as I got more and more into the world and I had the opportunity to engage directly with the world, I I had a lot of problems when things wouldn't turn out the way my mind insisted that they were going to turn out. Like I couldn't re-glue the days of my life when I was just a, you know, 20 something in a, in a shitty apartment and with gunshots in the neighborhood. You know, I had, I couldn't, those, there were so many things that I couldn't fix. And I think I just, that, that was more like the internal obstacle, but it was an obstacle to happiness. I had all the, I had all the problems you need to be a really successful musician. Do you feel like music wound up being something that helped you get through that or were, were they just, they not connected? Well, I don't know. I, I'm not sure because I feel like I'm, do you know who Andrew Wong is? He's a, he's a, um, a YouTube uh, synthesizer track making star. He's an amazing character and he makes he makes videos about to showing people um showing people uh how to do like how to use their new synth and how to like how to side chain things and or now how to like how to how to get um 
He's invented a new a sampler. I'm gonna look up. I'm gonna look at something because I want to. I want to know what his. Uh, uh, Andrew Wong. Andrew Wong. H U. Uh, A N G. Uh, what does Dan Wilson have up his sleeve? I'm just looking at. Okay. Andrew Huang's, he's a guy, I like him, and I, I met him uh, three three years ago or so. I just basically cold called him. I found him online and said, let's hang out. And we, we hung out, we've, and we've enjoyed getting together several times. And Andrew's um, Instagram uh, account is called... Uh, Let's see. Sorry about this long pause. Andrew is music. And when I saw that, I was like, okay, that's my tribe. I know him. So I don't know if music like saved me because music is like the internalist, most central beating heart. This, you know, it, everything else had to save music for me. You know what I mean? I had to save my personality. My, I had to fix my personality to some degree to save my ability to make music. It was all... It's like putting it backwards to say music saved my life because music is you. Music is me. I don't think that's totally true. And I've had enough, uh, you know, trouble and disaster in my life to know that there are times when it ain't, it ain't that it's, you gotta, you gotta get down with life and not with music, but you know, get down with life. I love that. Um, so, okay. So you're a parent now. I am, I am as well. And boy, it's so weird, but, um, (laughs) I think that's what inspired the the question that I usually land on with these wheels off conversations, which is if you encountered a 21 year old version of you, but working in today's world, um, what advice do you think you might give yourself? God, I thought you were going to say, what would you say? And I immediately thought, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to ask him what he's listening to right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Andrew Wong. I see I'm looking at it from my own <laughs> selfish I'm not offering 21-year-old Dan like advice. <laughs> I'm trying to glean insights from him for myself. I don't know. I would say like when my um when my my dad's mom was very old, there was a period of time when she lived in Minneapolis and my wife and I lived in Minneapolis at that time and my my parents had moved down to Little Rock and they were there for like 25 or 30 years. And um, so I was kind of the oldest, closest grandchild to my my paternal grandma. And we, my wife and I got to know her pretty well because of that. And we would go out and she'd make, a, we'd go to her place and she'd make us um, egg salad sandwiches, you know, on white bread and, and like whatever prairie, Minnesota prairie sort of treats, you know, that we would eat with her. And my wife uh, asked her a question that, I, you know, I never occurred to me to like interrogate her in any way, like in a positive way, like about, I just took her as my grandma and everything she says is gold. And then I just wait for her to talk. But Diane, my wife would, would, would ask her questions. And, and one day we were having lunch with my grandma and Diane said, uh, grandma, uh, when you think about your life, is there anything that you regret? And uh, I, I'm 
being like Midwestern, like very abashed about like that moment was already kind of fraught for me. I was like, oh my God, you know, no, don't do that. But my grandma <laughs> thought, looked, kind of thought for a minute, like had a real thoughtful look on her face. And she said, well, I'd say two things. One thing is, I wish that I had gone with Ivy, her husband, to Hawaii. He always wanted to see Hawaii, and I always thought it was too frivolous. And I wish that I had gone with him, because I think we would have had a very nice time, and he always dreamed of that, and I said no. And we were like, whoa. And then my grandma said, and I wish that I hadn't worried so much. And, uh, you know, I guess if I could tell my 24-year-old self, like, what the old version of himself has to say, I would say, hey, the only thing I, I want to tell you right now is you don't have to worry so much. You're going to worry about all the wrong things anyway, and worrying isn't going to help any of those things be better. So you don't need to. And I, that's, I wish I hadn't. God, I love that. I'm so uh, I'm so glad I got to talk to you today for nothing other than just that one tiny little moment. I mean, all of it has been so great. So funny. These, uh, you know, everybody has a podcast. You're contractually obligated when you're in our line of work. Um, I've never made a penny off these these things. But, um, man, I am so glad that I do this because I get to talk to you and I get to pick your brain and I get to be moved like you just moved me. And I feel like I learned so much and I really appreciate you appearing on wheels off. Thank you. Rhett, thank you very much. That was a a very nice conversation. And I, I I also appreciate a lot. It's nice to talk to you. I really get to do that. I love it. And, uh, and I can't wait to get a copy of words and music. Um, It'll perch right there in my, on my desk when I'm, when I'm stuck, I'll turn to you. I imagine my publicists uh, are, in, are listening in and <laughs> sticking in the mail right now. Excellent. All right. Thanks so much, Dan. Thank you, Red. All right. Thank you so much for listening to Wheels Off. Please be sure to rate and review the show on iTunes. That helps us appear higher in the search results and lets other folks know that it's a cool podcast to listen to. Also, As the kids say, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or anywhere else that you listen to shows like this so that you never miss an episode. This has been Wheels Off, and I'm Rhett Miller, encouraging you to create every day. Thanks, y'all. One Hit Thunder is a podcast where we both celebrate and have a good laugh about bands and artists that had just one hit that we all know. Each week, we're joined by a guest from the world of music or comedy to learn more than you ever thought you would about some songs that you can't forget. And we decide if they brought the One Hit Thunder or were nothing more than a one hit blunder. Look, if you listen to the show, you're probably going to laugh and I guarantee you're going to crush next time the bar has music trivia. Tag Team, Jane Child, Meredith Brooks, Looking Glass, Sean Mullins, Eiffel 65, EMF, Crash Test Dummies, Crazy Town, Chumbawamba. We have hundreds of episodes in our back catalog and a new episode each week. So pass the duchy, make sure you're connected, and subscribe to One Hit Thunder wherever you get your pods.